Good evening and a warm welcome from the Royal Society of Edinburgh to this evening's event, Community Action Against Climate Change. I am pleased to say that this event is being held in partnership with the Edinburgh Science Festival. I'm Nick Fraser, Keeper of Natural Sciences at National Museum Scotland, and I shall be chairing this evening's discussions. This evening, we are going to look at how communities can consider minor improvements to tackle climate change. Reinforcing that climate action can be created and sustained through small and tangible steps. Okay, good. Well, I'll just start. I'm gonna share um, my um, screen. Um, thank you um, to the Royal Society of Edinburgh for having me today. I'm delighted to be here. My name's Louisa Harvey. Um, I work in the um, I work for the Scottish Government in the Domestic Climate Change Division, and I'm going to give you a quick overview of the work that we're doing in the Scottish Government to raise awareness of uh, of climate change and to support individuals and communities to take action. So the transition to net zero is going to impact all of our daily lives. Managed well, it can offer opportunities to reshape local areas in a fair and just way that will improve health and well-being, will tackle inequalities and improve quality of life. Our public engagement strategy was published in September of last year and outlines our overarching framework for engaging the public and communities on climate change. And it has three main strands, understanding, so in ensuring that people are informed, act, ensuring people are aware of the steps they can take and are supported to do so and participate. Just because of time today, I'm not going to focus on participate other than to highlight that Scottish Government is com committed to meaningful participation, including with those communities um, and people that are most affected by our transition to net zero. For example, the work that we've done with Scotland's Climate Assembly, ministers have welcomed their recommendations and the challenge that they've set, um, and it's certainly helped shape policy design and will continue to do so. We're also working on a series of just transition plans, so looking at um, how we get to a fairer and greener society for all, and ensuring that that process is undertaken in partnership with those impacted by the transition to net zero. So that works underway um, in terms of co-producing those plans to ensure that we um, move to um, our net zero and climate resilient economy in a way that delivers fairness and tackles inequality and injustice. But my main focus just now is gonna be on what we're doing to support um, understanding and acting. So we have our website, netzeronation.scot. I would encourage everyone to have a look. It aims to help everyone in Scotland to recognise the implications of the global climate emergency. And it's got plenty of resources to help people um, to take action, as well as helping people understand what the government's doing to help. We are also working with SCAN, so Scottish Communities Climate Action Network. Um, who um, are adopting a climate for change programme. So it's based on an Australian model and it encourages conversations at a very local level to discuss, um, to raise awareness of the climate emergency and encourage people to change um, their behaviours and, and, and to take action. So they've spent the last few months adapting the Australian model so that, it, that it's fit for, for use in Scotland. And they've started training an initial group of facilitators. And that work's going to continue across 22-23. So they'll um, train facilitators across 
Scotland. Anyone that's interested, um, the website's on, on the, the slide and you can sign up to be a facilitator. You are then invited into a host's home and they will invite 10 family members, friends, members of their community to have a discussion about the emergency and actions that can be taken. Um, the Australian models had really good outcomes in terms of raising awareness, but also in terms of the number of people that have left feeling empowered to take action and, and to take those steps that are needed. Our main programmes of work, though, um, to ensure that we are um, empowering people to take action um, in their own communities and in their own lives um, is through um, a developing um, network of climate action hubs and climate action towns. And these initiatives will provide a vehicle for communities to come together, to share learning and to, to engage in collective climate action. So there are a number of key principles for the hubs, um, which can be developed in a number of ways, dependent on, on what will um, is needed by local communities and what will add value um, and really support them. But the main principles are around inclusion, collaboration and networking and making sure that the hubs are shaped and responsive to community needs. So Joan's here today and she'll tell you about the work of, of the hub that she um, manages. Um, but in, in broadly, the hubs will be there to really raise awareness locally of, of climate change and the actions that can be taken in terms of mitigation and adaptation. They will provide support um, and advice around um, projects that can be developed, encouraging collaboration and the peer-to-peer -peer learning in terms of best practice and what works and what doesn't. They will um, build and develop resources and materials and provide seed funding to develop projects and, and small-scale activity and, and um, will help signpost to agencies that can offer support and where there'll be funding and ensure that the views of local communities are heard both with in government and also at local authority level. We only have um, two hubs up and running at the moment, two Pathfinder hubs. They were launched in September of last year. Um, Joan will obviously tell you about the North Highlands and Islands um, Climate Action Hub. The other hub is called Nescan and it covers Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Um, their website is there if anybody is interested in having a look. And they've, um, in the last seven months, really worked to map all the activity that's already happening and really promote that um, to raise awareness of, of actions that groups can take and help people come together. They've spent a lot of time doing um, visualising where communities with communities where they want to be by 2030 and the steps that they can take to get there and working through that with them. Um, the, the, uh, Communities in the northeast are particularly, um, particularly with the, the storms and floods this year, um, are particularly concerned about um, adaptation and well about the, the impact of, of climate change on with the weather. And so Nescan are working with um, Adaptation Scotland and SEPA to hold a big event to um, discuss with communities steps that they can take. They're also looking to um, help inform policy and service design. And there's a picture there um, of some of the members of Nescan and some of the community members with Mr. Lockhead. And that was just from the last week when they met to meet um, to discuss um, their Just Transition Strategy Plan and to help inform um, and, and shape that plan as it develops. 
So we have the two hubs up and running. Um, we are now looking to um, develop that network so that we have hubs across Scotland. And we've just held a, a number of regional sessions to start that conversation and look at how we support um, the hubs to develop um, across the rest of Scotland. And if anyone's interested, um, you're more than welcome to, well, there'll be information on our website, but also you can contact me directly if you want to. Um, the, the other initiative that we have um, just now that, that is looking to really um, support place-based climate action, really looking at local priorities and local steps, steps that local communities can take is our Climate Action Town Initiative, which is delivered by Architecture and Design Scotland. They um, this year went through a process of identifying six towns um, those towns are based on a population of under 10,000. There was no evidence um, that the, the communities within those towns had um, started thinking about steps that they could take and, and thinking about climate action. They also looked at um, SIMD and at flood risk. So those towns are actually seven, but two of them are very close together, um, Ulness and Invergordon, so they've been counted as one. So in the last... Um, last six months they've worked to identify the towns, work with those communities, with the local authorities and key stakeholders to start thinking about the priorities um, and what those towns could do. They're about to produce their first year report of the learning from that so that it can be shared with other places and um, the second year will all be all will be about mobilization so really looking at um the, the priorities of the times and the opportunities there to, to really support change so they'll be working with third sector local authorities they're working with um scottish water they're working with the crown estate scotland um, and others to look at what collectively can be done to support those communities and those towns move towards net zero so it could be um, the focus could be on adaptation creation of resilient food networks it could be about community energy and um, it will very much depend on the town um, and we're hoping again the learning from the second year can then be adapted and applied to other places um, so finally, um, sorry, finally, um, I know I probably over time, but, um, just to also say that the Scottish Government does have grant funding that can support communities to take action. Um, our Investing Communities Fund, um, which is focused on reducing inequalities, also has climate outcomes embedded in it to, to make any group applying think about the steps they can take. And um, I think our, well, our Community and Renewable Energy Scheme CARES will be more and particularly relevant just now, given um, the impact of the pandemic and um, rising prices. Um, I've put a link there to Local Energy Scotland's website um, who deliver cares for us, and they can provide advice and support and, and financial support um, to help communities um, look at local energy projects. Um, so that's everything from me. I will pass back to Nick and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Louisa, and so many apologies for dropping out there. The trials and tribulations of uh, um, the internet from home. Um, moving on to our second guest, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Andy Kerr. Andy is a leader in catalyzing innovation in climate policy and practice. He co-founded and directed the Edinburgh Centre for Carbon Innovation and the Scottish Centre of Expertise on Climate. Among other things, he now leads EIT Climate, KIC. 
Europe's largest public-private climate innovation partnership, and this is for the UK and Ireland. He is an honorary professor of the University of Edinburgh, having previously been appointed as personal chair of climate and low-carbon innovation. Andy, over to you, and hopefully my internet does not uh, pack up on me altogether. Andy. Thanks very much, uh, Nick, and a very good evening to everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here, and, and thank you for inviting me. Um, as Nick said, I, I work for this, this slightly weirdly named organization called Climate Kick, um, and we work with a range of organizations, of cities, of local authorities, in terms of the how-to, how do you deliver some of the climate goals, the ambitious climate goals that they have, and we work right, work, right the way across Europe. Now, I don't have any slides um, this evening. What I thought I'd do is actually just tell you a story uh, to try and illustrate some of these issues around community action. And the story I want to tell you is, is about a project that we helped to fund and we helped to design um, three years ago, three, four years ago, which was really about, it was a big multi-million pound project um, where we were trying to explore how to widen access to electric vehicles partly because of the, the greenhouse gas emissions, partly because of clean air, but it was very much aimed at urban, certain urban communities who were poorly served by, by uh, transport, but they didn't have access to cars. They were poorly served by um, public transport and bus networks. And so the question was, could we find a way in which we supported both the community aspirations to be more mobile, but also do it in a way that was, was, was clean in, in uh, carbon terms. And so we launched this project. We worked very hard with the technology companies with the, uh, with the, on the economic modeling to check that the pricing that we were doing was right with the local authorities to make sure that we could get the, the vehicles in the right place. We could get them charged. We could price it in a way that was attractive to some of the, some of the local uh, communities. And then we launched it uh, three years ago. What could possibly go wrong? You know, this was all good intent. It was looking at, at supporting multiple outcomes within, a, within particular urban communities. And yet within a few weeks, what we found was um, firstly, one of the, the vehicles got uh, vandalized. And then the next week, a couple more got vandalized. And eventually they were just being smashed up, uh, all of them one by one. And so we had to stop the whole program and bring the police in and so on. And we were trying to work out what the, what the issues were. And what we found later that year was that um, the, the folk who were, were essentially vandalizing the vehicles were from some of the local private hire taxi firms that serviced those communities that we were trying to help. Uh, and of course, for them, what we were doing was bringing in public money and we were offering essentially largely or near free transport, which was entirely undercutting their entire livelihoods. They are essentially, they could see their livelihoods just disappearing in front of them. And so they took their matters into their own hands and went and, and did the damage to the, to the vehicles. Now, nobody comes out of this particular story particularly well. Um, we, from our side and our partners who were implementing the project and the local authority and so on, basically had missed an absolutely critical part of what we were doing, which was properly engaging the community to find out what the issues were locally to find out what was required rather than thinking we have a neat solution that could be imposed on a community. And so if you just spin forward a couple of years, over the last two or three years, we've been working with cities across Europe, uh, including places like Edinburgh, but we've also got interest from uh, Glasgow and elsewhere. And, and 
we're now leading some of the uh, the big European, uh, what they call the cities mission, which is taking 100 cities to net zero. It's a really ambitious climate target over the next few years. But the learning we've had from work with urban communities, but it's equally applicable to, to rural communities, has been that if you're looking at the sorts of transformative change that is required to deliver the targets that local authorities are setting in Scotland and elsewhere, then you need three things almost to underpin everything we do. One of which is you need an investment mindset. You need to be thinking about what, what are the costs that are going to be required to deliver this, not in terms of can a community afford it, uh, can the local authority afford it on its own, because the answer is neither can do that. The scale of the, the finance is too big for that. We need to be looking 10, 15 years and match it with you know, pension fund funding and things like that. The second thing is you've got to think about places. You've got to really think about the interactions, the relationships, the communities that actually live there and think about how they want to see their future. In other words, how do they want to build their future going forward? And the third part of what we've, we, I guess, is the sort of the underpinning thing that you need is what we call civic legitimacy, which is just a fancy way of saying you've got to work with communities if you're making this sorts of radical this sort of transformative change you cannot do it by imposing it on communities and and far too often i think in climate terms we descend into technical solutions we descend into neat sort of things that look good for economic policy making or for technology solutions we don't think about what does this community how does this community want to articulate how they want to take forward some of these opportunities. So a lot of the work that we now do is very much about how do we build that community sense of where they want to go? How do you ensure you are properly engaging communities in understanding their vision and working with them to deliver it rather than trying to impose it on them? So I, I guess, and, it, and it's worth saying that when you do that, of course, what you find is that it, it, these are hugely contested spaces. This is a difficult, challenging area to be working in. So we need to be very conscious of that. So let me just finish with a, with a couple of thoughts. One is that this key point, the scale of the challenge that we have set ourselves as Scotland, as local authorities, as cities, as rural communities, as towns, uh, is such that you cannot try and just sort of leave communities to one side and deliver some technocratic solution that somehow magically they'll take forward. It doesn't work. Um, we have to be working with the grain of communities. And secondly, I would challenge a little bit, I think, the framing of the, the, the talk tonight in the sense that the way it's framed in the text is, you know, we need to work with communities to identify alternative solutions and minor improvements to tackle climate change in an affordable, community-focused and sustainable way. I absolutely agree with that latter part in an affordable, community-focused and sustainable way, but I don't think it is minor improvements. I think it is absolutely at the heart of how any local authority, any business local authority partnership, public-private partnership, needs to work with communities to see the sorts of changes we require. So I think we have to put people at the heart of this rather than on the outskirts as something that is done to them, whether it's by a public authority or by a private business. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much.
Thanks very much, Andy. Uh, very important and telling lessons, I think, came across in your example there. Much appreciated. Our final speaker is Joan Laurie, who is project manager for North Highlands and Islands Climate Hub. She has been the development manager of Thurzo Community Development Trust for four years. And the trust has embedded community-led climate action into all of their projects. Joan has been operating and project managing the North Highlands and Islands Climate Hub since September 2021, focusing on supporting and encouraging community-led climate action throughout the region. So Joan, over to you. Thank you, Nick. Um, and thank you for having me along tonight. I think um, Louisa has already partly introduced me and the work that we're doing with the North Islands and Islands Climate Hub um, and what the aims of the hub are. Um, and just from what Andy has just said there as well, as I would fully agree with the fact that we need to put communities at the heart of, of community-led climate action and, and of climate action that needs to come from communities, um, which is really what we see the role of the hub as doing is that we're supporting communities and then we're feeding that through through key partnerships. Um, so one of the keys to the formation of the climate hubs has been that they're operated by community owned and led organisations. Um, so just as Nick could introduce me, I sit with the dual hat on of being both the development manager of Thurzo Community Development Trust and the project manager of the North Highlands and Islands Climate Hub. Thurzo Community Development Trust being the operators of the hub. So the trust formed in 2018 and we've taken the approach of rather than being a vert climate action group to instead embed it through all of our work, projects, initiatives, taking a holistic, sustainable approach to community led development based on the needs of our community and very much based on the evidence that comes from our community. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about rural areas because that's where we're covering with the North Islands and Islands Climate Hub and the framing of tonight's talk as well, which was partly about the energy crisis. So communities in our region, the North Islands and Islands, are generally disproportionately affected by living costs compared to the rest of Scotland. It's estimated that living in rural areas costs 15 to 30% more than an urban area. While our region does not lack green spaces or the space to get outdoors, we do pay more for energy, delivery costs are higher and food costs are generally higher. The cost of travel in rural areas can be excessive and many of our rural areas it would be impossible to live without a car as public transport doesn't exist. The climate action that North Islands and Islands really sees mixed demographics between pockets of affluence and subsequently inequality and those who are struggling. My own community in Thurzo being no exception to that where we almost have a dual community of those who have and those who haven't. If we think of inequalities, the impacts to someone experiencing disadvantage are not just living without, the impacts are experienced in comparing yourself to your nearest neighbour. And in rural areas, that can be more pronounced, being living next to somebody who's affluent to not having anything. So with such differences in communities, it can be really diff difficult to communicate and gain support for climate action projects. On one side, you can have members of the community who are really keyed into the climate emergency and have the funds to support living more sustainably, changing heating systems, air ve vehicles, even simply replacing plastic use with re reusables. But when you're dealing with your everyday and your everyday isn't great, trying to consider the climate and take climate action is on the lowest end of your priorities if we make climate action projects about climate. And that's not necessarily what we do at the North Islands and Islands Climate Hub. We talk climate, we 
um, tell everybody about the climate emergency. We educate people on the climate emergency. But what we also really need to do is take a place-based approach in communities, identifying first what the community need is, and then assisting community organisations from community councils to development trusts to small grassroots group, grassroot groups to engage with their communities around needs, sustainability and climate. Then looking at how improvements can be made to both address that community need, but also to do it sustainably in the kindest way possible to the climate, and also while engaging about climate the climate emergency. Um, it's quite a big ask, but I'm going to give you some examples. An example of this is where we're currently working on a multi-partner approach to the current energy crisis in Caithness. Caithness, Sutherland and the islands have high levels of fuel poverty, even before the prices started rising. Working with community organisations throughout the area, we're supporting an action group to support communities based on that current need of the energy crisis. That way we approach that in communities is to firstly listen to their needs, not just one need, in this case, the rising cost of living, but what else is going on? Are people feeling socially isolated? Are there opportunities to connect with others? So looking at the energy crisis, yes, we need to look long-term with communities. Are there needs for district heating systems, insulating and retrofitting homes? Yes, that becomes part of the longer term solutions and becomes even more multi-agency with more significant climate action benefits. But what are communities telling us right now? They need advice on energy efficiency, budgeting, how to save money, and that comes in workshops to make draft excluders and line curtains, food waste workshops, and teaching people how to cook communal and community meals. All of which bring people out of their homes, meaning for those few hours the heating is not on, but bigger than that, they bring people together in shared experience, create community connections, give a practical skill. Are they there to create climate action? The people who are attending, are they thinking climate action? No, that isn't their foremost priority, but they are taking climate action by coming to all of these things. And once we have them in the door, we can also then start to talk to them more about climate action and the things that they can do. They're also not feeling stigmatized by their needs. Take a further example of the rise of tool libraries which promote a circular economy or in Highland the phenomenal rise of community larders and fridges. And taking a climate approach to these type of projects we're reducing consumption and redistributing food that would otherwise go to waste. These projects draw people in, all people within communities. For those attuned to the climate emergency, they are making climate friendly choices for those who are accessing because they need additional support, these initiatives offer a community need. Um, that community need has been afforded a solution. We see through community growing projects in particular that yes, community-led climate action, but also reducing social isolation, green health, being outdoors, promoting healthier eating. People come together and talk. I've never heard of so many uses for all of the parts of a cauliflower. I've never had as many tips on how to minimize the food waste and I've never learned more about recycling from volunteers at a community garden project. Um, community growing projects in particular really work. We find that 90% of the volunteers at a community garden project will have taken up growing to some sort of scale in their own garden from window boxes to full polytunnels. Taking these simple actions of community growing, a community larder. They're, they're initiatives which help to solve issues within communities, but they also start to take those communities, people within those communities into the conversations about climate. So it's this work that we're doing through, through the North Islands and Islands Climate Hub to support communities throughout our region.
We've found that communities want to do more, they want to bring people together, and they want to address the climate emergency. And they want to do it through localism, through their local community, being able to offer more and offer solutions to the needs of their communities. So it might be that it's installing a renewable heating solution, a community building to make it warmer and for that community hall to have more usage. Even that in itself is a practical element, but it can also engage a community and what's going on. Um, just a village hall having a new heating system installed and making it a renewable heating system that provides an opportunity for that organisation to literally influence other people within their community. Um, <clears throat> there's more innovation that comes from um, community-led um, climate action projects as well. For example, we're working with a group at the moment who are looking to do community composting because they see an issue with food waste in their community. They also see an issue with wool in their community, which has now become a, a waste project, uh, a, sorry, a, a waste element. So we're working with them to develop creating compost from wool, from barking, from food waste, which reduces all of the waste within their community and also could provide an income to that community, which can then go back into other projects. Um, and the kind of terms of what we do, just as Louisa said, we work with other agencies, we work with other um, groups and initiatives in the North Highlands and Islands in particular, we work very, very closely with Highland Adapts, which is a local authority initiative, one of the first in Scotland to look at both adaptation and mitigation to the um, climate emergency. Um, and that brings in further partners, um, that brings us in working very closely with the local authority and feeding back all of these place-based approaches that we're trying to do within communities through that community engagement, including the climate action towns of Alness and Invergordon. Um, we kind of thoroughly believe that if you start taking these small actions, yes, we need the bigger actions, but by taking these small actions, we can start to mobilize commun communities. We can start to get communities to, to think about things, to talk about things and to, to become more sustainable. And particularly what we see in the Highlands is that there is a, a growing sense of wanting that localism to want that, food, that sustainable food system, to want those solutions, particularly since COVID. Um, it's a coming together, it's a connection within communities. Um, and that's really the way that we do it, is that we don't treat climate as being something separate. We treat it as being something that needs to be embedded throughout all that we're doing, throughout our communities, throughout our community organisations, um, throughout our daily lives. Thank you. I'm sure you'll agree that all three of our panellists have given us lots of food for thought. And I think I'd quite like to start the discussion by asking each of our guests what I would consider um, a fairly simple question. Uh, and I hope it doesn't go off subject uh, uh, at all, but we've heard a lot about COP26, but rather less about COP15 and the Convention on Biological Diversity. Do you see climate action and worries over global warming to be separate from issues surrounding biodiversity loss, or do you see them as part of the same broad programming when it comes to community action? And maybe I'll start with you, Joan, uh, on that. I think for, for me being based in the Highlands, I would generally see them as being 
one and the same where where we have communities in highlands you have well actually communities anywhere in scotland you have issues around land ownership land ownership also affects um you know who who owns land that could affect the biodiversity and what's going on with that land particularly in highlands we have a very controversial rewilding um where that gets spoken about quite a lot um and i mean we have several communities in highland who are looking at basically land, you know, the, the land that they own and increasing that biodiversity. So I would really see them as one in the same. And I think that communities would genuinely treat them as one in the same, but then it may be a slightly different perspective from an urban area than what we have in, in rural, rural Scotland. Okay, thank you. Um, and just a reminder, uh, please post any questions as they pop into your mind into the Q&A function uh, uh, at the bottom of your screen. So can I now pass on to Louisa with the same question? The Scottish Government um, is of the view that, that we, we have the twin crises of, of, um, of, of both. It's around biodiversity and it's about um, moving to um, looking at mitigation and adaptation. And I, I don't think they can be separated. I think we have to um, think about them and, and deal with them together. And Andy? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same. I think the work we've been doing, um, uh, Joan's already talked about the, 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 the rural communities, but certainly in the urban communities we're working with, a lot of the focus on climate action is we're trying to get away from focusing on, you know, the sort of, can we do something house by house? And actually much more is focused on how do you do placemaking within the community? And for that, actually green spaces, um, access to, 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 nature actually becomes part and parcel of those local communities wherever they're based even right in the center of a, a city so in that sense it just becomes part and parcel of placemaking and well-being rather than thinking that's sort of completely separate um, initiatives that need two different things to look at because actually you're talking about how do you build better places um, led by the communities who live there and, and that just is part and parcel of, of uh, improving that quality of that place. And do you think that uh, people generally, when they hear about climate change, also really think about biodiversity? Or is it all about the, the global warming and how we're going to um, stop our emissions uh, to, to halt that? Is that something that we ought to focus a bit more attention on, do you think, in getting that message across? My own view is that there's real problems with the language, um, but biodiversity is, is a, I mean, it's fine for the, for the nerds and for the, you know, for, for those of us who are policy wonks and interested in that stuff, but it's, it, you need better ways of communicating what that is to, to, to and with communities and how they want to communicate about it themselves. So I, I do think there's a real issue with the language we use here. But I did also hear from Joan loud and clear is focus on community needs. And once you do that, uh, then you come in with solutions that will help uh, the need. But the need is the, is the, uh, the real focus, I think, in these communities uh, of, of the, what, they, what they really need for their well-being and for uh, being productive. And so maybe just talking about climate and biodiversity, we should not do that at the outset. We've got to talk about potentially the, what does that community need to function really well in, in a sustainable way. Question here for Andy, how to work with communities when they are so divided in opinion? 
how do you implement and push right changes that need to be done, but perhaps people don't understand it and oppose it just because they resent change? So um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I'm just trying to think how best to answer it. The, the answer is, one of the things you have to do is you have to start to tease out what the what the challenge actually is behind the scenes. So what is it actually within the community? So for example, a really good a really good example that we've seen locally where I live near in Edinburgh has been that there was a big there was a big uh, challenge around communities when they started closing off roads to try and create more space for pedestrians during COVID. Yeah, and so the spaces for people became incredibly contested because essentially car drivers said, whoa, you know, you're, you're, you're taking away our, our ability to drive cars through this space. So you ended up with often a very vocal minority demanding that certain things happen, which actually impacted on the majority who didn't have access to the car in, a, in particular communities. So a lot of the focus is then you have to accept that there is a diversity of opinion. You, there isn't a right answer there is a way of then saying how do we find ways of working through that and there are some really good examples that we can show with uh, local citizen juries working with local citizen assemblies and so on to make that happen but you also have to accept that there will be a, a diversity of opinion and the other thing i think we're trying to show is actually showing where you can deliver what what we're trying to do is often showcasing what is possible in different places um, and what we're showing is that if you go to certain cities and you say actually you can do without or do with less cars you can do with less um, uh, if you improve public transport and active travel and you can actually show a better way of living and then start to get people building into that but it it is hard and, and I think we shouldn't pretend that there is you can walk in and say there is a right answer for that community and we've just got to get them to persuade them that that's the way they need to work work and go forward because it just doesn't work like that they do need to come to that solution themselves uh, and and but do it in a very open and transparent way thank you and another question here many say retrofitting buildings is helping fuel poverty health well-being as well as climate should we as activists raise that first or wait for communities to ask for building improvements so um what do you think to that louisa um well i i guess you could you could have um communities that are maybe better informed that may come forward for building improvements automatically and maybe areas that that aren't won't and so yeah so it's about raising awareness isn't it i don't think you are um, as raising with communities that they could build those, do those improvements, do that retrofitting, um, it's informing people. And I think that's what Climate Literacy is about and what the hubs, the work of the hubs should do. Um, it's about informing people of um, the evidence, of the data and, and the choices in front of them and what's available. Um, so I guess um, I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, yes, I think we should raise it, but, but in terms of informing people so they can make that choice. Yeah. Thanks, Louisa. 
And I'm just coming back to the, the language one, because I think I've probably brought that up a little bit. Uh, and another question here on language, how important do you think using terms like climate crisis or climate emergency are rather than less urgent terms such as climate change? Should we be using the more sort of uh, uh, urgent type of uh, uh, terms uh, when, we're, when we're talking about these issues? Um, and I'll, I'll pass that over to, to Joan to start off with. I think it's all <clears throat> still about informing people. And I think that um, we do need to get across that there is a climate emergency. We do need to get across that um, the issues are very serious. But it also goes back to using the uh, appropriate language for who it is that you're talking to. So. I think that it's, um, and just as the, the previous question about the rate of retrofitting buildings is uh, a lot of people in a community won't understand maybe necessarily that retrofitting the, their home is going to have an impact on the climate emergency, but having a, a warmer home, they understand. So it's how we go about engaging with people and how we go about using that language and taking people step by step. So it's that bit of, I always believe very firmly on taking a community on a journey. So for, for my own organization as there's a community development trust when we started, nobody believed that we could make any difference in our town or we've made a significant difference in our town, but we have taken people on a journey and we've been transparent along that way. But we talk to people in the language that they understand. So it may be that you're not talking climate emergency, it may be, even be that you're not talking climate to begin with. But as you move through and you engage more with people within your community, then you can start to bring in more of these concepts. You can start to bring in, you know, you can do full carbon literacy training with people, but actually some of that carbon literacy training happens standing next to a compost pile at a community garden. So, or standing having a cup of tea. It doesn't need to happen in a classroom or in a formal setting. So I think it's different stages of language. Thank you. And Andy, have you got any thoughts on terminology like that? Yeah, I, I just I couldn't agree more with Joan. I think I think that point that you know I think our experience was that the use of, of terms like climate emergency was really powerful three or four years ago because of what it got was a whole bunch of, in particular, local authorities to say, look, we're going to go and do something, and they set these really wild targets and had pretty much no idea how they were going to achieve them. But actually what it did was kickstart a whole series of processes which actually have been really useful. But when you're actually talking with individuals or with communities, you don't talk about just the climate emergency. You've actually got to talk about the things that are the, co the, the things that matter. Warm, affordable homes, you know, access to, to jobs, access to, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that really matter. And, and I think the point that we would argue with the work that we've been doing is that actually there is a sort of virtuous circle where you can actually help communities to deliver almost as a almost as a as a byproduct the, the climate targets whilst actually delivering what they want as a community in terms of quality homes, in terms of green spaces, in terms of jobs and investment. And actually you can do that in a way that delivers multiple co-benefits, you know, better, cleaner air. Uh, lower carbon and so on, and improve quality of buildings. So I, I, I just think that, that you don't start by going in and trying to tell people about the climate emergency. I think that's been done really effectively in multiple ways over the recent years. What you actually talk about is the very practical, the granular that makes a difference on the ground. So I, I agree with Joan absolutely on that. 
And I have a, another question here for all panelists. Does the relative disempowerment of community councils in Scotland, e.g. when compared with TMP councils in England, provide an obstacle to community empowerment on climate, or does the lack of agency at that level actually enable greater connection between Holyrood and communities? What are your thoughts on that, Louisa? It's a, um, a difficult one to answer, um, and I, I think it will depend on, on the community councils. Um, I, I know that, well, Joan will be able to, to comment maybe a little bit better in terms of what work. I know that the hub has been working closely with the community councils across the area, and I know that we've had, we've just held a number of regional sessions on the climate action hubs, and a number of um, members from community councils came along and were interested in actually looking at how they can support climate action and the work that they can do and how they integrate um, and support the, the, the wider work that will be going on through the hub. So um, I know that doesn't answer the question, um, but, but I think everyone needs to be involved. We need community councils involved. We need um, local authorities involved. Um, every, everybody um, needs, we all need to work together. So, um, and, and we need to find a way to, to do that effectively. I can see you nodding your head there, Joan. So uh, I'm assuming you agree to with that. Yeah, I think it fully depends on who the community council is. Um, <clears throat> I also come very firmly from the, the development trust network. And I mean, the development trusts have generally sprung out of community councils as well. I mean, the, the, the issue being with community councils is that they, you know, the, the technicality is that it's difficult for a community council to own land or buildings. So quite often a development trust actually springs up to take that sort of more enterprising approach within their communities and becomes a community anchor and can employ staff and do all of those sort of things. So I actually, I, I feel that community councils do actually have that impairment, but it, it does depend on the community councils. And we have spoken to, well, not me personally, but one of our development officers, Amanda, who I think is actually attending this as well, um, she has spoken to numerous, numerous community councils across the Highland area. And it, yeah, it depends on the community council, I would say. Anything to add there, Andy? Or are you in complete I, I, agreement? I can't, I can't add anything on the community yeah. councils. Yeah. I think there is a wider democratic deficit that we have um, in terms of, uh, and again, I, I, you know, I'm working much more at the, at the local authority level where in terms of the, the capabilities and the funding to allow things to happen. I think there's been a, you know, we've been degrading our democracy at, at a local level, and that is not just at the local authority level, but it's below that level as well um, over many years. And I think there's a real challenge for how we sort that out. And, and that's certainly in comparison with the work that we're doing in, in the Nordics in, in Denmark or in, in Sweden and places like that. It's just a very different framing there. Yeah. Question here on climate literacy. Should climate literacy be taught at all levels and subjects of education and in all vocational training? I'll push that one to you, Andy. Uh, I mean, the short answer would be yes. And, uh, and the reason I say that is um, that, again, there's always, it's very easy to look at the world as it is now if you're looking at the world as it will be in five or 10 years time, you know, things that are changing so rapidly in terms of, and just think about vocational training, you know, we're still seeing people in vocational training coming out. Um, we're doing a lot of gas safe work. Great. Yeah. But in three or four years, five years, there won't be gas boilers being put into homes. 
Yeah. So similarly with electric vehicles, similarly with, so there's a whole series of vocations in that space where there is fundamentally transformative change going on right now over the next few years in terms of um, construction materials, in terms of um, vehicles, in terms of electric, you know, charging points, and everything else. That whole business needs to be brought through right away from an early stage from the basic climate literacy as to why is the why are these changing taking place what's the understanding of climate but also because new markets are emerging new opportunities are emerging and actually we as, as scotland need to be really well equipped to take advantage of that to support the supply chains to support the investment in businesses small businesses as well as large and that does require both a really basic level of climate literacy all the way through from very early ages but also to ensure that we bring the technical education and indeed the, the higher education through at that, that, that point as well. But the short answer is yes. <laughs> Thank you. And just seeing a few more questions here. Um, I would describe the different aspects as being like air. You need all the parts to be in the correct ratio. Too much oxygen, for example, can have a negative impact, not just CO2. Do you agree? Uh, Louisa? Um, I'm just reading that through again. So it's the ratios, making sure you've got the balance, I think, and is that the, the correct approach? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, yes. Joan or Andy, have you any thoughts on that question? I think, <laughs> if I'm going to answer it correctly, is um, so we need things like the, the communities to be on board, we need the local authorities to be on board, we need the private sector to be on board. And yes, I would fully agree. Um, that is, I kind of mentioned it a little bit when, when I spoke, but that's why we're working very closely with Highland Adapts, which has been set up to look across Highland region at both mitigating mitigation and adaptation to the climate emergency. But that's the private sector, the public sector and communities all working together. Um, and I think that we need that kind of work happening in all sort of regions across Scotland. But yes, I agree. It's a delicate dance of stakeholders. That's the, the best way that I can describe it. Delicate That's a nice way of putting it. Very nice way of putting it. And here's a question for both Joan and Louisa, in your mind, do you think it is essential to work together with the local council? And if the hub is a bit uh, better positioned than individuals, and what is the most effective strategy to get results needed? As in my personal experience, I was working with my local council in Edinburgh forever about bins and recycling, but it was years ago and changes still haven't been implemented. So it feels council is not interested. So um, thoughts on that, Louisa and Joan? Um, well, I do think it's essential that we work with um, local authorities. I think um, there's been a lot of work done recently around climate literacy. I mean, you know, local authorities deal with a huge number of areas, um, but I think awareness is growing. And, and I think there has been a real shift um, across the board in terms of um, looking at what actions can be taken. We've had local authorities really interested in the hubs. I think 
you know, when you, you look at councils, um, the resources stretched and it will be, um, they will have challenges, I think, supporting all areas and all things. And they see the hubs as a potentially really good way of being able to engage with communities on what they need and what they want, and then help then influence um, kind of uh, how things, services are designed and delivered. I think we will start, I think we are already seeing shifts and um, with a huge amount of work going on across a number of local authorities. And I, that will only just, uh, will continue to ramp up as, as, as we as we go forward um, I know that um, that they're looking yeah so yeah yes I absolutely think we need to work with the local authorities um, of course there are challenges working with with local authorities and with national government but we we are seeing changes and I think we will continue to do so anything to add to that Joan I think I would probably echo exactly what Louisa said. I think that there's been for I mean we're working across three local authority areas of um, Highland, Orkney and Shetland and I would say that there's definitely been a significant shift. Um, my experience is more so via Highland and if I can give any tip to dealing with a local authority we've got a very good relationship with um, Highland Regional Council in particular um, because of the work of the trust as well is that if meet your local authority halfway. So if there's something that you can do to kind of solve something for them, but you need it from them, you need something back from them as well, then that's the way to approach working with the local authority. Um, I remember there being a comparison not long after that first lockdown with COVID. And I mean, certainly what happened in our region was that it was communities that sprang into action to support people during COVID with the local authorities following a little bit slowly behind. Um, and the comparison was, uh, I was told, well, you're you're a little boat. It's very easy for you to turn yourself around very, very quickly. We're a huge cruise ship. It takes a little bit more time. Um, but I certainly have seen that there's, uh, and I think that COVID has actually played a part in that, is that local authorities have seen how communities have responded. They've seen how communities can identify what their needs are and certainly the experience that we have is that they are becoming very attuned to the climate emergency and what can be done and how it can be community-led as well. Thank you. So we're running a little bit tight on time now. I'm going to see if I can fit in a couple of questions and going to the sort of more practical side of things. Question for all of you. What is one to two of the, the biggest things that a household can do to reduce carbon climate impact. And also with an energy cost going up 54% in the UK, a lot of people uh, would have to decide if they eat or heat or eat. Is there a solution to that? That's a, a bit of a tricky one there, but I'll pass that to you first, Andy. Um, okay, so I, I might be a bit uh, um, contentious here, but one of the biggest things, if you if you if you are a if you pay into a pension, you one of the biggest things you can do as a household is to make sure the pension is investing in um, essentially green outcomes. That's one of the biggest single thing, which sounds bizarre compared with what you think you can do with your with your hands and what you buy and so on. But that is one of the biggest impacts you can have um, as a household. Um, in terms of um, practicalities a lot depends on you know things like commuting if you're commuting to work you know the vehicles you use can you use public transport and so on and so forth but I, I think the biggest thing that would help people at the moment is improving insulation of homes bluntly 
Um, it, it's just the energy prices we have are just brutal and they're going to be awful throughout next year. Um, and I think the, the, the shambles, and it is a shambles that the UK government has done with their energy strategy, not to focus absolutely on the near term opportunities, which is about improving the quality of homes insofar as we can, particularly in deprived communities, is just a shocker because that is the thing we need to be focusing on because that both delivers personal benefit uh, as in warmer homes to people and reduces the, the impact of the energy uh, crisis. And it is a crisis for very many people across the country. So I, I think it's a shocker where we've got to, but that would be the biggest thing that would have the biggest impact, both in terms of, um, in terms of energy savings, but also it may not create a great carbon saving, but it does, it is so important for people at the moment. Perfect, thank you. And Louisa? Um, yeah, I agree around insulation. Um, I was just going to add in terms of the question around um, heating homes, just to, there is um, uh, a fuel poverty um, uh, insecurity, fuel insecurity fund through the Scottish Government that can be accessed um, to support people. Um, and obviously we, we will continue to do um, what we can um, via CARES um, and other measures to, to Look at how we support people over the the coming months and um yeah yeah so just to to highlight that as well and finally joan um i would absolutely echo the improving insulation however your budget can allow you to do that um if you need to make draft excluders from old tights then do that if you can have your 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 full home retrofitted and um insulation then then do that but yeah improve insulation and then I think the second most practical thing that I would say is and I don't know if it's really a practical thing but just be that little bit more mindful so think about your consumption do you really need to go and buy that and um, again just as Andy said about the pension divestment that's just being that little bit more mindful the same with food be that little bit more mindful could you buy it locally could you eliminate it from going to waste yeah Okay, thank you for those uh, insightful answers. Um, I'm afraid that we have come to the end of the evening. We have run out of time. So I am sure you'll agree that it has been a, a thought-provoking evening. And I hope you have all been as uh, challenged and inspired as I have been. So all it remains for me is to thank you all for attending tonight. And especially thanks to our guest speakers, Louisa, Andy, and Joan, for their time and insights. I hope you enjoy the remainder of your evening, and we hope to see you soon at another RSE events in shortly. Good evening. <laughs>